Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains. But I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again.
Hello, history friends, patrons all, and welcome to something a little bit special. Zach Twomley here, your host of When Diplomacy Fails. Don't worry, don't panic, we've just taken a tiny break from the Versailles anniversary project until the 23rd of April, and the Italians continue to scheme in the background. Don't worry about them for the moment, we're looking at something a bit different here. We're joined today for a collaboration by someone who's getting a lot of attention right about now, Mr. Tim Bouvery. But before we jump into that, I must set the scene by asking you a question. What comes to mind when you think of appeasement? Is it that famous speech Chamberlain gave to an eager audience in September 1938 after returning from Munich, which, yeah, opened the episode there? Is it the futility of giving in to a bully which always asks for more no matter what you give him? Is it tragedy, missed opportunities, or naivety? Is it fear, self-delusion, or paranoia? Maybe somehow it's all of these things. Or maybe appeasement means nothing more to you than one among many steps towards the Second World War. To Tim Bouvery, author of the book Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain Churchill and the Road to War, appeasement has been his constant companion for the last several years. And now, literally now in mid-April 2019, these years of work have culminated with one of the most astounding works written by any historian or author, let alone one making their official debut into the sometimes difficult world of Second World War literature. Bouverie's book is an engaging, disturbing, but also fascinating ride through not just appeasement as a concept, but also those characters who fought for and against it as a foreign policy device throughout the 1930s. As such, Tim's book is misleading in exactly what it does, because don't think that this is just a book focusing on a single idea, that being appeasement. Instead, to me and many others who've reviewed this book with glowing praise, this book is a definitive work on pre-World War II foreign policy, with Britain as the lens through which we view all those catastrophes happening. While of course we know that the Pacific Joyride ended in early September 1939, those figures that lived through it were not so fortunate to possess a crystal ball. Many did their best, some insisted to the end that Hitler would not launch war, others insisted with equal passion that war was inevitable and had to be countered with rearmament or alliance building. In the middle, arguably, of the whole debate stands Neville Chamberlain, a man whom you'll come to know more than ever before after reading this book, and which Tim does a great job demystifying. Appeasement was not an unfortunate misconception, but a policy powered by the naivety, small-mindedness, and in many respects the arrogance of Mr. Chamberlain, who felt he knew better than those who told him otherwise, and who provided evidence to back up their loud denunciations of the policy of giving Hitler what he wanted. Hitler's reasonable demands, Chamberlain believed, could be met. And once they were met, Hitler had told him so, the Fuhrer would not take the terrible step towards war. A man who hated war, Chamberlain left Britain scrambling for position once that war broke out. Until Britain did find its feet, the paralysing fear of living through that same trauma of the Great War compelled British and other leading statesmen of the age to behave in questionable, but occasionally honourable ways. As Tim denotes here several times, Context is key, and in the course of our conversation here we touch on everything that came before and after the events of the late 1930s, from Versailles, which of course gave me a handy opportunity to plug our Versailles anniversary project, 
to the Suez Crisis in 1956, which enabled me to do the same thing for that series, and in that case, in the Suez Crisis's case, an arch anti-appeaser from another world, that being the late 1930s, Anthony Eden, went from national hero, due to his status as an anti-appeaser, to unscrupulous villain. All the while, Anthony Eden followed the lessons that he believed he had learned in 1940. As you can probably tell from the length of it, if nothing else, it was a really fascinating conversation. And having taken the time out of my Versailles anniversary project and 30 years war reading to get informed and actually read Tim's book, I can tell you honestly that I couldn't put this book down. If you feel you've heard all there is to hear about the build-up to World War II, well, first of all, listen to this episode here. But after you do, head over to Amazon or perhaps your local bookstore and track Tim's book down. You're likely going to see his name a lot over the coming months, and he did a huge favour to us by taking some time out of his busy schedule to come on for a chat with me. So thanks a million for that, Tim. Unfortunately, before we launch triumphantly into the show, I do have to admit that the audio quality is not quite what I wanted it to be. You see, we had some connection problems along the way, which we had to work through, and I was able to edit out the worst of it, but there is some points where you'll notice that there's some slight crackling or breaking up. Technology, believe it or not, still hasn't forgiven me for whatever I did to it several years ago, but the end product here is still brilliant, and I'm really happy to be able to present it to you guys. Without any further ado, I'll shut up, and we'll just get right into this. The next voices you hear will be mine and Tim's. Okay, everyone, so welcome to the podcast. I am joined today by a very special guest. He is Tim Bouvery. His book, Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill and the Road to War, is very hot off the press at the moment, and it's a great book, and we're very happy to have him on. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. It really is hot off the press. It's literally out at, at pretty much at this very moment in time. Is that correct? It is. Uh, official publication is actually on Thursday, the 18th of April, so two days time. But um, it is already in quite a lot of bookshops over here in the UK. And I gather you, it's in a few of yours over in Ireland as well, which is great. Yes, it is. I've seen a few advertisements for it already, which is, is great to see. It makes me feel pretty cool as well, interviewing this famous author fellow. Uh, so that's great. Uh, I would love to know, and I'm sure listeners would like to know as well, a bit about yourself. Well, I think the most obvious question I'd like to I'd like to ask is, where did your interest in this appeasement debate begin? I first thought of writing this book, or first had the germ of an idea to write this book when I was reading the diaries of Harold Nicholson, who was a an MP during the thirties and wrote these fantastic, beautifully written diaries. Oh yeah, and he came across three young lords, three young peers in a gentleman's club in London in May 1938, who admitted that they would rather see Hitler in London than uh, have a Labour government. And this seemed such an astonishing thing to me that I wanted to find out more about how deep admiration or sympathy for the Third Reich was among members of the British elite. And then I, I found I couldn't really answer that question by reading because two too many of the big archives, the big aristocratic archives here in the UK are closed off because they're private papers. And understandably, an awful lot of people don't want you um, 
turning up and writing about their grandfather's uh, admiration for the Nazis. So um, that, that's, that's why it hasn't really happened before. But then as I went on, I realized that there was a need to write a larger book, um, or I wanted to write a larger book. So many of the brilliant histories that have been written of the 30s before, I think, assume that we know the end of the story. We know that the 30s end in the most dreadful war that human history has ever known. Contemporaries didn't. And so trying to capture through these wonderful diaries and letters and diplomatic dispatches, the uncertainties and moral dilemmas of the time, that was what really... Uh, appealed to me and that's what I've tried to do in the book because as I said I'm fascinated with the period I I really found your book which you'll be unsurprised to know I found it very engaging and really as as in a narrative even just to the lead up to the second world war I don't think I've read something as engaging as that in a very very long time well that's incredibly kind of you I mean I think it's a while ago lots of history books were fairly dull, but and even military histories. But what uh, these great historians, Anthony Beaver and Max Hastings, did to the Second World War was to make it extremely exciting and sort of from the bottom up, from the contemporaries' perspective. But what they have done for the actual military history, and I'm not a military historian, it's not a field that I'm write about or have written about here, hasn't actually been done for the 30s. And it, it from a literary point of view, I think that there is, it, is, it, it just is incredibly dramatic. Because even if you are trying to write it from contemporaries and they don't know how it's going to end, we do. You can't stop the fact that we know how the story ends. And it's the essence of a Greek tragedy, the inevitability of knowing that it is all going to end in terrible tragedy. Yeah. And so every time one MP or Tory MP or whoever it might be says, oh, you know, I think we've really got this Hitler chap under control. You just want to sort of scream at them. And it, 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 so it has a natural inbuilt drama and tension. Sure, yeah. That is what makes the whole story so engaging in a way, I think. It, like, we know how the story ends, and while we see the characters acting and reacting, we know that they're ultimately doomed. And I think that's what makes the question of appeasement not just fascinating, but also controversial in a way. Absolutely, and... It, it is important to remember, and a huge part of the book is spent pointing out that there were people who were pointing out that they were doomed and were people who were pointing out how it was going to end right, right from the beginning, in particular Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. but also others like Britain's first ambassador to Nazi Germany, Sir Horace Rumbold. There were certain journalists. There were members of the British Foreign Office. There were an awful lot of warnings, which the British government and newspaper proprietors and much of the public just chose to ignore during the time. So it's this huge tension between people warning of what Churchill famously described as gathering storm and those who refuse to believe him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, completely. Now, I realise we didn't exactly follow the straightforward course of action here, which is, I think, beginning with the question, what is appeasement would be a good idea. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, appeasement in this context is the attempt by the British government and to a lesser extent the French government to avoid a second world war by making what they saw to be reasonable concessions to the dictator states, that being fascist Italy and in particular Nazi Germany. Mm. That would would be my definition of appeasement. The attempt to make, nobody was ever saying that it wasn't uh, peace at any price. It wasn't, we would give them India or partition the British Empire or allow them unrestricted hegemony within Central Europe. 
um, those those ideas would, would have been too far, but reasonable concessions. And there was an argument that an awful lot of what Hitler was demanding during the 1930s was reasonable, however aggressive the way he demanded and however militaristic the way he then went about seizing it. Sure, yeah, yeah. The idea of appeasement and even the very mention of it, it, it conjures up so many negative ideas and so much, so there's so many negative connotations. You won't see anyone see a good, say a good word about appeasement. Whereas at the time that appeasement was, was being pursued, it was very popular. Uh, absolutely. And it, it's really important to point out that appeasement is not necessarily a bad thing. It, it, Churchill himself said during the Second World War that appeasement from a position of strength is noble and magnanimous and in many ways a very sound piece of diplomacy. It's appeasement from weakness because you're scared of this bully. And as I think a lot of, uh, there are a lot of metaphors to describe appeasement in the time. And Harold Nicholson, again, I think put his finger on it when he said, if we let the Nazi alligator eat all the other little fish in the hope that he eats his last, it's not, yeah. it's not really a very good strategy. So it, it was appeasement from weakness and from fear was mm. not sensible. But appeasement from strength and justice, of course, can be a very reasonable idea. And it did not have negative connotations at the time, and nor was Neville Chamberlain, uh, the British Prime Minister between 1937 and 1940, the first person to use the term appeasement. It was uh, used uh, almost immediately after the Versailles Peace Conference, where quite a few people in Britain felt that the Allies had been too harsh on Germany. And people then began to talk about changes to the Versailles Settlement, which would, quote, appease the European continent. Mm, mm. Now, you've mentioned two of my favorite things. You've mentioned Harold Nicholson, and you've also mentioned Versailles. I don't know if you're aware, but at the moment, our podcast is essentially tracing a centenary series of the Versailles uh, Treaty. We call it the Versailles Anniversary Project. But something that we do a lot is draw on the diaries of Harold Nicholson, who was present in Paris at the time. And I find the connection between the Versailles Treaty and what Hitler was doing very, very interesting, because really, because of this perception that the Treaty of Versailles was so bad and so unfair, Hitler was able to get away with an awful lot, and he was let off the hook an awful lot. Do you think that would be correct to say? Absolutely. Uh, Harold Nicholson is an active part in this, and is in some ways, despite being a great anti-appeaser, later responsible for that he was a British civil servant who attended along with another more famous British civil servant called John Maynard Keynes. Mm. And both of them were horrified by what they thought of as a vindictive and excessively punitive peace imposed upon Germany mm. at uh, Versailles. And both published in Keynes's called The Economic Consequences of Peace, probably the dullest title for one of the most important books ever. <laughs> um, in that it, it it became a massive international bestseller. It really these books really helped establish the myth of the Versailles dictator. In fact, the Germans did not have to pay the vast reparations that were imposed on the Versailles. They were reduced and then abolished by a succession of treaties in the 1920s. The war guilt clause does not actually use the word guilt at all. It's a legal mechanism. And frankly, they got off a hell of a lot more likely than uh, they would have, than I think the Allies would have done uh, if the Germans had won the First World War. 
But the Germans themselves, so much the 20s, to pushing this idea of the unjust peace that it had a very very major effect. And by the time of the 30s and the rise of Hitler, there are very, very, very few people, including anti-appeasers like Winston Churchill, who are not prepared to say that the Allies went a bit far at Versailles. There, Versailles has very few defenders by the mm. early 30s. And that whole adds idea that Hitler had a point and the Germans had a legitimate set of grievances. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. I actually didn't expect this much uh, relation to the Treaty of Versailles just because it's so current for me at the moment. And, and this idea that Keynes almost immediately afterwards gains this incredible influence and really completely shapes the narrative to a specific direction, which Hitler, of course, capitalizes on. And then, of course, as they say, the rest is history. But I mean, we could we could talk about that that background area forever. But I would love to ask you just as as a kind of leading in question before we actually get into the meat of your book, really, was there any character specifically that stands out or that stood out to you at the time and, and still sticks with you today? from doing this this book and this research? Several characters, and the book and indeed the period is filled with some of the most fascinating characters, both admirable and repulsive, that you could ever wish to encounter. <laughs> what, one of the sort of heroes, uh, if I could use that word, it's not a very historical word, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, that I came across is this man, Sir Horace Rumbold, who was Britain's first ambassador to Nazi Germany. And he realised right from the beginning, the extreme danger that the Hitler government posed to the peace of Europe. And he was able to send this amazing forensic analysis of where he considered the trajectory of Hitler foreign policy would be. And he was able to do this because he had read Mein Kampf. And his analysis of Mein Kampf, which in very crude terms, was a a murder note written before the murder was committed was spot on. The problem was that very few people in Britain and France and America actually read Mein Kampf, not least because Hitler owned the copyright and was able to stop copies of the book from being published outside Germany. Now, when it was published outside Germany, it was cut so severely edited that it was only a third the length of the original. All the bits about him wanting to annihilate France, he actually uses the word annihilate France, to wage a war for aggressive uh, territorial acquisition in Eastern Europe and Russia. All of that's cut out from this document, which is then uh, published in a very, very sanitized version in Britain, France, and America. Um, the thing that really fascinates me about about your book is that it un- unveils like facts like these. The fact that Mein Kampf, we often ask, oh, well, how did people not know what Hitler was all about? Did they not realize that... I mean, he'd set down essentially his manifesto in this book that was freely available. But as you pointed out there, it wasn't freely available. In fact, it was it was quite difficult to come by in its in its raw, unedited, unsanitized form. So the only way that you could really read my gamp is if you read it in German or got it translated. And it's fairly shocking that the British government didn't have the whole thing translated for their benefit. Mm. Um, they, they, they often used excuses. They would say things like, but, well, look, Hitler wrote this when he was very young. He wrote this in prison when, in 1923. It's, you know, he's now Chancellor of Germany. He can't possibly be still propounding the same ideas that he was uh, spouting as a young man. Sure. To which, to which the obvious answer was, which 
some people did point out, well, if that's the case, why is this book compulsory reading for everyone in Germany? It's the Bible <laughs> of the Nazi movement. It's not important. Why is it in every German household? So the failure to understand Mein Kampf was massive. And it, it links to what I would say is the biggest failure of all of the appeasers of this period is the absolute catastrophic failure to understand the real nature and intentions of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party and the Nazi government. And mm. these weren't from Mein Kampf, but from an awful lot of other sources as well. These weren't exactly hidden. Yeah, and, and I think that's an important thing to emphasize. I, I You might think that by, by saying, oh, well, they couldn't have read Mein Kampf, so it's not their fault. We could go down a certain trajectory there. But the, the bare facts of the matter, and I learned this very much from, I don't know if you read Richard J. Evans' book, uh, The Third Reich in Power, but it yeah, really... It really emphasizes within that how completely geared towards war the entire Nazi state was to the extent that they had food shortages, they had shortages in raw materials, because from the very beginning, Hitler was determined to launch this war. So it is bizarre to me, knowing that, that nobody knew, except for apparently the British ambassador, that this war was very much in the pipeline. Completely. Some people did. Uh, Winston Churchill did even before Hitler came to power. He was saying in 1932 that all these bands of sturdy Teutonic youths marching with the light of desire in their eyes to suffer for their fatherland. These people aren't looking for equal status, which is what the German government and the Nazis kept on claiming, equal status with the other world powers. They were looking for weapons and then they were looking for the return of their lost territories. And the, they wanted to bask in the sun, as they believed that Germany, given her size and her history, deserved to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hitler, it should be said, continually proclaims his pacifism during this period. And an awful lot of English visitors to, and Scottish, I shouldn't just say English, British visitors to Nazi Germany during the 30s come away from meetings with him utterly convinced that he is man of peace and would never go to war again. What you had to do, or what these people should have done, is weighed up the realities of the ground with Hitler's honeyed words about peace. And Hitler mm. had broken his words so consistently prior to the Beck crisis and the Munich Agreement. It shouldn't have come as a surprise. The man was a serial liar. <laughs> and the, the propaganda of the German government, both internally and externally, was consistent. So just to take Hitler at his word, based on speeches he made in the Reichstag, where he often talks about his admiration for the British, his admiration for the British Empire. Uh, this was, I think, naive. On the British side, it probably would have been easier to investigate what Hitler was really all about if the British had wanted to know the truth. But it was easier to delude themselves and 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 say, well, there isn't going to be a war because he says it, and we believe him because we want it to be true. Do you think there's Absolutely. an element of that? Completely. One of the most famous and successful books to be written on Nazism during the 30s was a book called The House That Hitler Built by an Australian historian who had spent a huge amount of time traveling around Nazi Germany called Stephen K. Roberts. And he published his book in early, late 1937, early 1938. I can't remember the exact date. It was widely read, including by Neville Chamberlain. (laughs) And in this book, Roberts argues that the aim of the Hitler government is war and a war for European supremacy. And Chamberlain writes in a letter to his sisters, if I agreed with the author's conclusions, I would despair 
but I don't and won't. It, there was an incredible stubbornness to not see what was clearly obvious to those who were prepared to look beyond their own interests. There, there were un- very, very, very understandable reasons why Chamberlain and many, many others did not want a second war or a second confrontation with Germany. But by digging their heads in the sands, they were caught in disaster. And I think it's it's so interesting because it's so easy to look at the appeasement debate in isolation without really considering the context. And something I think you do really well is emphasize that context and particularly the fact that they were still living, people in Britain and of course in Germany were still living with the shadow of the Great War still hanging over them. And this idea that they couldn't possibly commit their their men or anyone else to another four years of slaughter in the trenches, which is, of course, what they imagined it was going to look like. Do you think that element of fear, not just self-delusion, but genuine fear about facing up to that again, really motivated people to act a certain way? Uh, uh, unquestionably. And it's, it's so understandable. There, there probably has never been a more understandable or universal wish in history than to avoid the Second World War, particularly against the same enemy for near 20 years after the war to end all wars. And this next war was thought to be much more terrible. I think uh, many people in Britain and Western Europe, or indeed all of Europe, entered the First World War fairly blindly, thinking it would be like other wars that had been fought before. And it Mm. was. It was the most terrible war in modern times. The Second World War, before it occurred, was projected to be even worse. And it was going to be much worse because it was going to affect civilians. Britain was only very lightly bombed by Zeppelins and shelled by the German uh, battle fleet in the First World War. But the advance of aircraft technology and their war potential convinced people in the 30s that the next war would see the complete destruction of whole cities within a matter of weeks. Yeah, And there was nothing that people thought that you could do to stop this. The bomber will always get through, said Stanley Baldwin, who was prime minister. And this created absolute terror. On top of that, it was felt that Britain could not survive financially another war and that her empire probably couldn't withstand it either, which was, although very large, in fact, larger than it had ever been after the First World War, was visibly creaking um, Mm. and uh, clearly in decline as other powers, including the United States, came into into the fall. So the, the, the enormous desire to avoid the Second World War is so understandable. The problem, the great moral political dilemma with which contemporaries had to wrestle is at what point does your very legitimate desire to avoid this war actually make that war more likely? Because even living in that time as well, I mean, they weren't just positing theories about how destructive air power could be. They had actually seen, if they paid attention to the media, the destruction of of the Spanish city of Guernica in the Spanish Civil War and its destruction by mostly German and Italian bombers really it would have sent shivers down the spines of those that were watching on and and thinking to themselves, well, we don't want this to happen. And I think, yeah, I think the fact that you do dig into those feelings is very important because it also makes them appear more human, that even while we don't agree with them, not essentially not rising to the challenge until it was very much too late, fear as as a human feeling we we understand that we understand why they wouldn't want to to face it it wasn't just that they were cowards but there was something clearly on the line and they could see where where the danger resided it's very very interesting absolutely and chamberlain says when he is on his first flight to hitler on the 15th of september 1938 he looks out the window 
at London's docks, and he imagines that he is in a German bomber coming over and how terrible it is. And, and you're completely right about Guernica, but they had also, it, it, earlier than that, the British had seen the destruction uh, that the Japanese had caused uh, by, with the bombing of Shanghai. And the film version of H.G. Wells's novel, The Shape of Things to Come, a future dystopian uh, novel which imagined a world war and is really an extraordinarily prescient work. This film version, as indeed the novel did, imagines and portrays the complete destruction of London by enemy bombers. And it was terrifying, and contemporaries really were terrified by it. Yeah, and I think the the, the interesting fact, because... We often we often look at at appeasement beginning in Munich or like the symbolic idea of Chamberlain coming back with peace for our time. I mean, you can look at the video clip of that and it seems like it seems like another world. But you make the very, the very important point that while the Czech example is the most famous, it's actually really in the Rhineland in 1936 that my my interpretation was that you see that as the moment when almost like there was no going back now because it was if you couldn't stop hitler at that point in 1936 when he was relatively weak and he was taking a big risk then two years later when he'd had the chance to to rearm and prepare himself more there was even less you could do yes that's true and in hindsight i think the reoccupation of the Rhineland, the last chance that the western powers could have stopped Hitler without a major war. It would have been very easy for the French army to have pushed the Germans out of the Rhineland and Hitler would have suffered a major setback. What he then would have done is impossible to tell. But what I also point out is there was absolutely zero appetite among the British and the French populations for a war uh, or even a police operation to push the Germans out of the Rhineland. The French, who were even more traumatised by the First World War than the British, are convinced that this will lead to another war of attrition. And the French chief of the general staff, General Maurice Gamelin, is incredibly defeated. And he essentially lies to the French cabinet. And he tells them that the Germans have moved 300,000 troops into the Rhineland, whereas, in fact, they had only moved 22,000 troops. So he, he makes it seem far more dangerous to push the Germans out than it is. And in Britain, it's not so much that there's great warfare because we're further away from the Rhineland. There is warfare, but... Beyond that, there's just not a causus belli. There is no reason the British see to go to war or risk war to push the Germans out of their own territory. This has been welcomed. It was a what people thought of to be a defect of Versailles. Mm. And the, the whole thing is brought home to Anthony Eaton, who was foreign secretary at the time, by his taxi driver, who tells him, well, I suppose Jerry can do what he likes in his own back garden. Yeah. So, so there was that, that feel. But this was, in retrospect, the last chance that... Hitler could, I think, could have been stopped without a major war. That the argument about Czechoslovakia back in 1938 isn't so much that a war could have been avoided if we'd stood up to Hitler. Actually, I think uh, Hitler ultimately did link the intercession of Mussolini was important, but the mobilisation of the British fleet, the failure of the Berliners to welcome this uh, a cavalcade of German armour which was moving through the centre of Berlin, down Unter der Linden, on its way to the Czech border. Mm. All of this convinced him that he, he, wasn't quite, he wasn't quite as confident as he, he liked to appear. And so it is possible that uh, an earlier greater showing of strength by the Western powers could have uh, forced him down. More likely is that war would have broken out in 1938. 
But I think the point I make, and some of this is hindsight, some of this is not, is that Britain and France were in a strategically stronger position to fight in 1938 than they were in 1939. And, and I think so the Czechs were as well. I mean, we, we take it for granted that Hitler absorbed the Sudetenlanda and that was that, but it's often forgotten just how defensible that whole area was and how really, I, I mean, it's demonstrated in the fact that in, within a few months, Hitler was able to occupy the rest of Czechoslovakia and he was able to do that because the Czech lands and Slovakia were so flat. Once you took the mountainous defensible regions, essentially they were defenseless. Absolutely. Once Hitler's got the Sudetenland, the door to Czechoslovakia is wide open and there's nothing the Czechs can do. They really are a, a vassal state of Germany after then. And the German general staff are all very nervous about this mountainous, highly fortified region in the Sudetenland where there is some 32 highly motivated, well-trained, well-equipped Czech divisions. I, I don't think many... Uh, Historians doubt that the German army, the Wehrmacht, would have prevailed against the Czechs in September 1938 or October 1938 had there been a war. And if there had been will to mount offensive operations, the Western Front, Germany's Western Front, was practically undefended. That, that's not just hindsight. The French knew that the vast majority of the German army and the Luftwaffe were all arraigned against the Czechs. The problem which the Western powers would have faced which they then did face in 1939, is that there was not the will, either among the populace of France and Britain, or the politicians, or the generals, for an offensive war. So just as in 1939, the British and French do nothing and just sit digging trenches and constructing pillboxes while the German panzer divisions overrun Poland, so I suspect the same thing would have happened in September 1938. Having... Russia, in even nominal alliance with the West, would have been a benefit, certainly better than having them in alliance with the Germans, as was to occur a year later. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Stalin actually made an attempt to formulate some kind of alliance with Britain and France in the spring of 1939, I believe, and then he was rebuffed and changed tactic completely. Well, Stalin is always incredibly distrustful of the Western and there are very, very good reasons, as Churchill later discovered when he became Prime Minister, for being very wary of Stalin in particular, but the Soviets in general. The Soviet foreign minister, however, Maxim Lipinov, is much more pro-Western, and he really oversees a revolution in Soviet foreign policy, which ends the isolation of the early Soviet Union era. They joined the League of Nations. They say that they will support the Western powers over sanctions, in Italy after Mussolini's invasion of Abyssinia in 1935. They say that they would support sanctions over the German occupation of the Rhineland. And then between 1937 and the Czech crisis in 1938, Lipinov offers the hand of Soviet assistance, a Soviet alliance to the British. There is already a French-Soviet alliance. But he, he keeps on suggesting that they get together and make plans to contain this very dangerous Nazi state in the centre of Europe. And he's continually rebuffed. And then the fact that the British and the French sell out the Soviet allies, the Czechs, at Munich, and the Soviets are not invited to join the Munich conference, this starts to convince Stalin that the West will always buckle before Hitler and can't be trusted. And then the real failure of the West to secure an alliance 
alliance with Soviet Russia in spring and summer of 1939 ultimately results in Stalin looking to the obvious alternative, which is a deal with Nazi Germany. I never really thought about it from this angle before, but would it be fair to call the Soviet alliance with the Nazis a form of Soviet appeasement as well? Or would that be thinking too far into it? This idea that we can't team up against the Nazis, so let's let's make friends with them instead, or at least try to. Yes, you could say that. I think it's more than that. Though. It, it's appeasement, but it's also uh, pragmatic um, Machiavellian uh, move, which allows a very greedy and immoral Joseph Stalin to uh, partition... Poland and the Baltic states, which he's obviously uh, coveted before. It's a, it's a devil's alliance between two dictators who are totally opposed ideologically, but very similar in terms of character and worldview and ambition. So, yes, it is appeasement. And then the appeasement of Germany by Soviet Russia continues. While the West is fighting Nazism, the Soviets, despite later paying an absolutely dreadful blood price for this mistake, are shipping timber, coal, oil, natural resources, you name it, into Germany, which she desperately needs for her war effort, and are later going to be used against the Russians after Operation Barbarossa. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy to see. And actually, there is a book called The Devil's Alliance, which I have in, in on one of my shelves somewhere. Very interesting take. But that's another example. I mean, your book, it's not just, it's not just about appeasement. It's about literally the 1930s, building towards this disaster which seemed almost impossible to to avoid remind us again just for those listening at home where would be the best place to get this book of yours well i really hope that it's going to be distributed far and wide in all of your fantastic bookshops in ireland but <laughs> the safest and i I'm, I'm hugely pro supporting bookshops um we uh, we need them and they're part of our cultural heritage and hugely enriching but for safety's sake i would say that the an amazon delivery is probably the safest way of ensuring that you get your copy but uh, it i do know that it is in shops in ireland already and uh, i just can't guarantee which so amazon delivery will get it to you very fast but also hopefully it's in shops too moving on from that i mean just to take a specific example we will go back to the idea of appeasement as a dirty word but what about when it was used in a kind of a, a, a again as still as a dirty word, but to kind of motivate British statesmen in the fifties to not behave the same way? Something which really interests me. I'm doing a series on the Suez Crisis at the moment with Anthony Eden as the Prime Minister. To uh, he he managed very easily, really, to recast in the Suez Crisis in 1956 to recast Colonel uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser as this. Hitler figure who had to be stood up to and presented the whole situation as one which, well, if Britain let Nasser away with it, then they were appeasing him. And it was very effective. Now, the policy itself was a disaster. But do you think that appeasement as an idea, it was like this this policy of shame that just refused to go away and haunted British politics for so long? Do you think that would be correct to say? I'm absolutely correct. It's, um, it has hung around Western thinking about international affairs from the outbreak of the Second World War right to the present day. And Eden's tragedy in 1956 is one of the m- most obvious examples. Eden had been foreign secretary to 
was always haunted by the idea that we hadn't taken a firm enough line against Nazi Germany. And then along comes this uh, dictator in a moustache, and he says, things, hang on, we've been here before. We are not going to do this again. Mm. The problem with this is people conflate and get, get the wrong lessons from all of this. If the appeasers from the 1930s failed because they didn't understand Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, then Eden fails and Bush and Blair fail because they also don't understand that NASA in 1956 or Saddam Hussein in 2003, these people aren't Adolf Hitler either. They might be unattractive, they might be tyrants, they might be uh, people who have committed genocide against their own people in the past, but there are a lot of other nasty people out there in the world who are not planning to take on, but neither of them posed a major threat to Western security or the world order in the way that Hitler did, and they certainly didn't justify, uh, in Eden's case, an illegal conspiracy mm. to uh, take over and re uh, repatriate the canal to Britain or uh, an illegal war uh, conducted by Bush and Blair in 2003. And th th there are other examples as well. I mean, Margaret Thatcher says to Ronald Reagan when uh, General Galtieri invaded the Falkland Islands, he said, she says, this is where Neville Chamberlain went wrong. I will not do what Neville Chamberlain did. And I think that there's people, or generally history, says she was probably right. You had to stop dictators thinking that they could just grab land which uh, belonged to other countries, particularly if the citizens uh, of, of that land wanted to remain a part of that other country. The, the problem with this was is that uh, the Falklands could have easily been avoided if the British hadn't, as they did in the 30s disarmed to such a degree, particularly around the Falklands, and removed HMS Endurance, mm. and effectively said to the Argentinians, we're not interested in that anymore. So it, what I always think happens is people always learn the wrong lessons from the last war. After the First World War, the British and the French decide that what's caused the First World War are alliances. So we're not going to have any alliances anymore. Big, mm. big, big mistake. Then they say, well, it's not just alliances. It's also weapon. There was an arms race. So we're not going to have any weapons anymore. That's a big problem. So all of these lessons, so all, the, all the lessons from the First World War go into making the disasters of the 30s. And then all of the lessons of the 30s are misinterpreted by subsequent generations of politicians, which lead to fresh foreign policy disasters in Suez, in Korea, Vietnam and Iraq. And I think just taking it back to the actual moment when the war happened, appeasement didn't end when the Second World War began, because even when Hitler had invaded Poland and officially the declarations of war were launched, you had, of course, the phony war that followed. And then this idea in the British cabinet among some British ministers that defeating Hitler after the fall of France especially was essentially impossible and that the best thing they could hope for was was a peace. And I think Lord Halifax, as as a figure, stands out to me throughout all this period. What what's your what's your view on on Halifax? Because you spend an awful lot of time investigating him in the book, and I find it very fascinating. Well, Halifax is interesting because he switches position both times, has or could have had in the second time a decisive influence on the course of not just British history, but European and even world history. Uh, having been one of the leading appeasers, almost more of an appeaser than Chamberlain was, throughout 1937 and 1938, and he goes and visits Hitler and uh, effectively tells Hitler that the British and the French will do nothing to oppose 
him if he takes over Austria, prohibited by Versailles, or the Sudeten Germans, provided he does it peacefully, and Hitler doesn't really listen to that last bit, or regards it as weakness. Then in the midst of the Czech crisis, he switches sides. He, having supported Chamberlain after Chamberlain returns from his first meeting with Hitler, at which they agree that Sudetenland should be returned to Germany. When Chamberlain comes back from his second meeting, at which time Hitler is making further demands and trying to push the timetable for the whole thing, Halifax is persuaded by his leading advisor at the Foreign Office, Sir Alexander Cadogan, that this is a step too far and that once we've done this, our prestige, British prestige and international affairs, which really counted in those days when you're talking about trying to hold together a quarter of the globe. And it, it should be said, even Chamberlain and Halifax, these people took British honour and the British name far more seriously than other generations, let alone our current politicians do. <laughs> he is persuaded that this, this is too much and he comes out against Chamberlain at the crucial cabinet meeting and essentially stops Chamberlain from capitulating to him. Wow. And that is then what leads to the week or so when the British think they are about to go to war in 1938 and people dig trenches in Hyde Park. This doesn't happen because Hitler gets cold feet and he forced the Munich. But Halifax is crucial in stopping Chamberlain in the midst of the Czech crisis from making further concessions to Hitler. Mm. The positions are then reversed, however, when in 1940, France is overrun and it looks as if we are about to be on our own. And Halifax's view is not that we should necessarily appease Hitler, but at least find out from him what terms he would offer. His view is that if they are terms which allow us to maintain our independence and our safety and our empire, then they should be accepted. And crucially here, it is Chamberlain who sides with Churchill to say that this would be a complete disaster and that no terms that Nazis could ever possibly offer to Britain would ever be acceptable. And what Chamberlain realises, which is what uh, Churchill also from banging on about and Halifax failed to realise, is that these terms would have been completely unacceptable to us and we would have had to have said no, but then the Germans or someone else would have leaked them. And it's very hard to persuade a nation to double down and fight for all it's worth if they think that at a higher level its politicians are talking peace. It would have been utterly catastrophic for morale and for the war effort. Much has been written about that event, but also not all that much is really understood about it. I mean, I have, I think, four or five different books with Churchill on the cover, essentially talking about those those crucial meetings and the moment when things kind of could have swung either way in, in a sense. And it is terrifying to imagine what might have been. How kind of interested are you in alternative history, which which kind of posits this idea that Halifax wins the argument and next thing he knows a piece? You can think, if such and such and such didn't happen, would we have still ended in this outcome? If Hitler had been assassinated in 1935, would the Second World War have still broken out? It's is a very interesting question because what it forces you to do is focus on the role of Adolf Hitler and then differentiate between that and the other historical forces at play. I think one can look at what would have happened if Halifax had succeeded Neville Chamberlain rather than Winston Churchill, and one could have been extremely alarmed at the idea that what I think would have happened is an approach would have been made to the Germans for what 
to find out what their terms would be via the Italians. And these terms, I have no doubt, would have proven unacceptable to Halifax and unacceptable to the people he would have had in his cabinet. But the great, great danger was that they almost certainly would have been leaked and revealed publicly, and that would have had a really devastating effect on morale and the British war effort. Mm -hmm. I don't think Halifax would have surrendered the fleet or surrendered part of the British Empire. I, I could be wrong, but he, 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 I don't think he was quite at that level of peace at any price. You do spend an awful lot of time looking at the kind of amateur diplomats and also people who aren't actually as well known. You mentioned in the beginning the the British ambassador to Berlin as well. Do any of these any of these figures kind of stand out to you? And what 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 really drew your interest to their exploits rather than the kind of traditional like big heavy hitters, so to speak? Well, it, it's just an extraordinary thing about the 1930s and the appeasement years that here you had people who had no official position within the British government or encouragement from the British government just popping over to Berlin to have tea with Hitler. I just don't know any other period at which this <laughs> has happened. I mean, you might think, uh, and certainly a lot of people over here think, that the Brexit negotiations have been a complete shambles. But thank God you haven't had the Duke of so-and-so or Lord such-and-such such just flying off to have their own negotiations <laughs> with Donald Trump and Jean-Claude Juncker. Yeah. But, the, but this actually happened then. There are, I think, some sociological reasons for this. It, one is that the British aristocracy had lost a huge amount of power by the time of the first. They didn't have much political. But the Germans didn't realize if you were someone with a title, you could go over to Germany and you could get a meeting with Hitler more easily, I think, than you could actually get a meeting with a leading cabinet minister in <laughs> Britain. And, and this encourages and flatters all these people. There was Lord Rothermere, who was the... Uh, owner of the uh, Daily Mail who visited Hitler and an awful lot. And, uh, but then also people on the liberal left, including the uh, Marquis of Lothian and the National Labour peer, Lord Allen of Hertwood. And all of these, I'm, I'm fascinated because I think it shows so much about what the actual heavy hitters were motivated by as well. These people were very frank about their motivations and they were a mixture of fear of war terror of communism, a great sense that the Nazis provide a bulwark against Soviet communism and therefore should be welcomed, admiration for the Germans' achievements, in particular the eradication of unemployment, unemployment which remained stubbornly high in Britain throughout the 1930s, and then also the less attractive side, the uh, not what I call the noxious glamour of the Third Reich appeals to a number of the more frivolous members of British society, most famously, including the, the Mitford sisters, mm. uh, uh, but also others who troop out there uh, to go to the Berlin Olympics and go to the Nuremberg rally and generally embarrass themselves and their country uh, quite a lot abroad. And it, it's, it, it is very much part of the tapestry, but also the atmosphere of the time, uh, these people. And so I, I was fascinated to find out about them. And I also wanted to write about them because, frankly, they haven't been written about properly before. And an awful lot of them have um, not had their papers crawled through in the same way that the very well-known uh, figures such as Churchill or Chamberlain have. And, and you do make the point that you do actually go through a lot of like previously unseen sources and, and archival research as well, which is which is so 
like it's so important for a new approach like this and obviously it, it paid dividends because what you have here is a a 500 page book that not delves. that long don't put people off it's only 420 <laughs> pages they want people thinking my god what 420 <laughs> highly readable pages <laughs> Yeah, you see, the funny thing is, for in my brain, it's like the longer the book, the better. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I, I almost make it sound longer because I love longer books. But yes, I realize some people might be might 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 uh, be turned off by that, but they should not be because what I found is that the better the book, the less the less you want it to end. And I, I'll say again that the actual examination of the build-up to the war, it's been done so many times in so many different books. Were you put off by that fact that this is, while it's not familiar ground, it's certainly an, a wellish known story? I was and I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried because the genesis of the idea, writing it from contemporary accounts, writing it in a different way, told me that even if I didn't find anything new in the archives, which fortunately I did, I knew that this book would be hopefully different to what had come before it. So I, I was always fairly confident about that, and I was fairly confident that there would be new material to find, because so much is published that more recent histories hadn't gone back and done archival research. Sure. I was, however, nervous, because although actually a major book, which is, covers the whole of the 30s, most books tend to focus on just a personality, a, a Chamberlain or a Churchill or an episode like the Munich Agreement, People, there hasn't been, whereas my book goes from right to the very beginning, from the advent of Hitler in 1933 right through to Dunkirk. I, I was I was worried because everyone thinks they know the story terribly, terribly well. And so some of the things that people have said to me about it, well, why are you doing it? Surely this has all been done before. Uh, I, it, it's strange because I never find that people, these people say the same things about the endless histories of the second world war which are brilliant i have nothing against them i think that they're, they're, they're great but i don't know thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of books in the last five ten years have yeah. come out on every aspect of the second world war but if you ever challenge someone about when was the last time you read a history of appeasement from primary sources mm. uh, which covers the whole period they tend actually not to be able to give you an answer yeah and and I suppose that's where where you see your your niche, your opportunity uh, of 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 jumping on this. And I'm I'm a big believer in the fact that like different historians, different authors can bring different perspectives to areas yeah. that are that are viewed as kind of well trodden ground. Absolutely, I don't think there's there's no no go areas. People each generation, uh, particularly with history that is relatively fresh, people of other generations who've written about the. 30s, quite a lot of them lived through it, or they, their parents lived through it. My parents didn't live through it, and my grandparents were children, uh, young children. So I think um, a period of distance is important, and it's mm. also important because more things come to light, files are released, translations are made. Uh, one of the big books which uh, I was thrilled to read and gave me a lot of great material are the diaries of uh, the Soviet ambassador to London, Ivan Maisky. And hmm. this is a book that has only been published in the last few years. There, there is always a reason to go back to subjects if the, if the subject itself deserves it. And I think this one does. And even with figures that we think we know very well, like we think because we've seen Chamberlain wave that piece of paper that we know him inside out. But even just from reading your account, finding out stuff about Chamberlain that I didn't really realise, like within his appeasement 
policy, he had a plan or he believed that he could separate Italy from Germany and, and use the Italians as a kind of as a kind of a, a lever against Germany almost, or at least as a way in the back door kind of diplomatically to get what he wanted. Do you think that the actual, the diplomacy of Chamberlain is kind of underrated in that sense? No, I don't think it's underrated because he makes almost as big a hash of it with Mussolini as he does with Hitler. What, sure. what, what I don't think is uh, unreasonable is that he has a very sensible mission when he becomes prime minister, which is to reduce the number of Britain's potential enemies. Yeah. Britain cannot possibly face the combined might of, of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy and imperial Japan all at the same time. And if we were only facing the danger of fascist Italy, then it would have been, they could have been very easily dealt with, as indeed they were when the war broke out. Mm. So that the desire to reduce the number of our enemies, I think, is, is wholly admirable and normal. But the idea that Mussolini could be separated from the Axis, uh, a, a man who's actually far weaker than Adolf Hitler, who would have been far more impressed by a show of British strength and determination, particularly over the Abyssinian uh, episode. Mm. But the British help push him towards the German camp, uh, as, as well as him making his own natural moves towards the stronger power. Mussolini is not such a gambler as Adolf Hitler. I refuses to go to war when Hitler goes to war in 1939 and only jumps in incredibly opportunistically once the Germans have crushed France and he thinks he's going to be joining the winning side. Obviously, there's a massive mistake there, but it, it shows the mindset of a man that will ally with what he considers to be strongest power around. And the impression that the British continually give in the 30s is one of weakness. Drawing back to what we said before about appeasement being generally quite popular in Britain in the late 1930s, there was this, would it be fair to say that Chamberlain started to believe his own hype in a way once he got the Munich Agreement sorted out? You you examine his kind of actions immediately after Munich and he was he was very chuffed with himself in a way. Do you think he kind of got, he kind of, his his head started to grow in size a bit? Well, it was already fairly large by the time he got to Munich. He, <laughs> I, you, you could not find a, a man who had a higher conceit of himself than Neville Chamberlain. He said that he, quoting the Earl of Chatham, who is a, a much greater prime minister, he said that, I know that I can save the country and know that nobody else can. This, is, this was a man who had a, a messianic sense of mission. Mm. And people who have that sense of mission, more recent example would be Tony Blair, are often undone by this uh, zeal, this sense that they've been chosen to fulfill something, and they, because they ignore inconvenient facts. That is something that Chamberlain certainly did. And the whole argument used by Munich's defenders later on, after the war had broken out, and subsequently that it gave us a vital breathing space with which to rearm, oh, yeah. is, totally, is totally unsubstantiated by Chamberlain's own words, not just peace for our time, which he later regretted. But when certain cabinet ministers and members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party come to him and say, look, we've now got a massively increased rearmament because this isn't going to be the end of Hitler's demand, Chamberlain says, but I brought back peace. And he refuses to increase British rearmament after Munich. He refuses to build that system of alliances that would deter Hitler or defeat him as swiftly as possible. Mm. So... He, he really does believe the hype, and, uh, but, and the, but the hype was true. I mean, there was massive adulation at Chamberlain, a hugely popular man who 
was showered with presents and letters. The French subscribed to buy him a house in the countryside with a trout stream. In, in, <laughs> across the world, he was sent presents and letters after Munich. But the adulation of the Munich Agreement actually wore off before Hitler violated it and invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. And even before Kristallnacht, the British soon began to realise that what they were celebrating was actually a humiliation rather than a great victory. Yeah. So it, it really, the honeymoon period only lasted a few months, but for, but for Chamberlain, it was almost like he never, he could never really let it go. He, he couldn't. And he, he also just was never, ever prepared to accept some ways a very noble thing, in some ways right thing. He was never prepared to accept that war was inevitable. He said he always believed right up to the outbreak mm. that he could stave it off. He was an incredible optimist. He's a great example of, of, of the problems of having a prime minister who is too optimistic. You don't, <laughs> you, you need to be a bit more realistic. Mm. And, even once war has broken out, he is incredibly optimistic, thinking that the German economy is about to collapse and that Germany is going to be able to be defeated without us having to do much fighting. We've just got this massive navy which is blockading the German ports and that this will eventually bring Germany to their knees. And this is pie-in-the-sky stuff. It took four years of heavy fighting plus a blockade. It is not going to happen in September 1938. And May 1940, particularly not when the Soviet Union is supplying Hitler with so many tons of raw materials. Of course, of course. Yeah. And I think you can even see in in the primary source material that's freely available. If you listen to Chamberlain's speech over the radio announcing that this country is now at war with Germany, he even says you must understand what, what a bitter blow this is to me, not even like to, to the country, but to me, he seemed to have taken it personally that his policy of appeasement did not work out. And it was like a bitter blow to him rather than the country, which is also at war. And speaking of that speech by Chamberlain, let's have a listen to it here so that listeners can see what we mean. Listen especially to how Chamberlain personalizes this crisis as a window into exactly how self-absorbed he had become by this point. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. You can imagine what a bitter blow it is to me that all my long struggle to win peace has failed. Yet I cannot believe that there is anything more or anything different that I could have done and that would have been more successful. Up to the very last, it would have been quite possible to have arranged a peaceful and honourable settlement between Germany and Poland. But Hitler would not have it. He had evidently made up his mind to attack Poland, whatever happened. So I, I'm very careful not to put my own views about the declaration of war in the book, because many contemporaries found it deeply moving and wept at it. Even Princess Elizabeth, now our Queen wept when she heard Chamberlain's broadcast. Uh, but I personally find it very honest. A man who has led his country to a position where she is facing potential annihilation at 
an independent nation, destruction of her empire, is making it about himself. I, I, I find it mm. completely flabbergast. The important historical point about the failure of Chamberlain and his lasting legacy, or his best legacy, rather, to uh, Britain is that when we do go to fight Germany in September 1939, we go as a united nation with our empire firmly behind us. Mm. And that wouldn't have necessarily been true or probably wouldn't have been true of a year earlier. But this is born of the failure of his mission. It is born of the fact that nobody could say that we hadn't done everything. Like when we're trying to weigh up the pros and cons of appeasement, I mean, you could argue that because of appeasement, the empire was more united behind the British. And had appeasement not been followed or pursued, that that wouldn't have been the case like a year before. I mean, again, to take it back to Suez, something which really strikes me about that is just how disunited the British Commonwealth in that instance was, that the British tried to launch this this collusion and Canada and Australia and New Zealand refused to support them and everything else. So could could you make could you make that argument? I know I'm pulling you in all these different directions now, but could could you make that argument that it, it was good purely from that perspective? I think if war had broken out then and Britain was facing a crisis for her survival that the empire probably would have rallied, uh, but that's speculation. Mm. Certainly by the time of September 1939, the, the, the empire is far more unified, and it, it is definitely true that we enjoyed far greater support from the English-speaking dominions than we would have done a year before. Mm. Yeah, well, it's been great having you on, Tim. I have like one or two final questions, but just to remind people, of first of all the name of your uh, the name of your book and and second of all where we should go to go and get it. Um, thanks, thanks, Zach. It's been great talking to you too. The book is Appeasing Hitler: Chamberlain, Churchill, and the Road to War. It's by me, Tim Bouverie, and it is hopefully available in lots of Irish bookshops, but it's definitely available online at Amazon. Thank you very much for that. So, as the final question, then. Uh, and and normally, by the way, just to, to illustrate to my listeners how great a sport you are, normally I would send my guests a long list of questions so they have time to prepare. But you've been pretty much off the cuff the entire time. So even with my long and winding questions. So well done with that. Thank you. <laughs> I think my 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 question was. With regards to appeasement, was there was it always doomed to fail? Was it always futile or did it ever stand a chance of actually succeeding? And I think I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to ask the expert instead. I think that trying to reason with Adolf Hitler and trying to come to an agreement with Adolf Hitler was futile. It would not have been futile with someone else or a different regime. And it didn't have to be that radically different a regime. Most of the pre-1933 German chancellors had wanted to adjust Versailles, and so uh, and it was the critical failure of the British government to realise this and to realise the character of Adolf Hitler and of his regime that led to the disasters that followed. That is that is essentially my understanding of it as well. So, yeah, maybe perhaps if a better regime, a different character, a different Germany. A Germany that didn't want war as much as Hitler did, maybe things would have been different, but tragically not. Yes, I, Hitler actively liked war. Chamberlain loathed it. And Chamberlain couldn't believe that anybody 
could be so evil as to actively want war. He could not believe that people like that existed, but unfortunately they did, and Hitler did want a war and uh, gloried in it. And any sort of negotiations with him were, I think, as you say, doomed to failure. I think it's a major misconception that people have. Lots and lots of people think, oh, well, in the 30s, we didn't know how awful the Nazis were and we didn't know how awful Hitler was because it's not until 1942 that the Holocaust begins and it's not until after the Second World War that the British and the world really learns about the Holocaust. The perceptions and awareness of the Nazi persecution of the Jews began within weeks of Hitler coming to power. Destruction of German democracy, the suppression of political opponents, the concentration camps, the aggressive bullying gangster tactics and military coups in the Rhineland, in Austria, in Czechoslovakia. There was very little doubt for anyone who cared to know what the Hitler government and the Nazi regime was like. Kristallnacht, the massive pogrom against Germany's Jews in November 1938, the evidence was there. It was not, it was not true to say that contemporaries did not know who they were dealing with or did not see or could or, or couldn't become aware of the evil of Nazi Germany if they cared to look. Yeah, this this ignorance, especially when, as we said in the beginning, the British ambassador to Germany sending home all of these very detailed reports on exactly what the situation is. It's, it's like banging your head against a wall thinking, why didn't they listen? But that's just, I suppose that's why we're here. <laughs> Indeed so. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on, Tim. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I extra enjoyed reading your book as well. So I recommend all my listeners go out right this very moment and go and get your book, Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill, and the Road to War by Tim Bouvery. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks very much, Zach. It's been a pleasure. And there we go. What did we think of that? Aside for some minor tech problems... I think that went really well, and I'm really excited to hear what you all thought about it. Remember to track down Tim Bouvery's book, Appeasing Hitler, for all your appeasing needs. And trust me when I say, you won't regret it. This book comes with the WDF stamp of approval, which is rare indeed, because I read so few books these days outside of my tiny researching box. A huge thanks again to you, Tim, for joining me, and to you, the listener as well, for listening in for the last hour. This has been When Diplomacy Fails, You've Been Great. Thanks for joining us, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.